do you seem so scared? All I wanted to do was play with you. Please come and play with me. I am so lonely. You're not afraid of the dark, are you? Don't be afraid. Come with me. I will show you where I play hide and seek. Do you want to play hide and seek? You hide and I'll find you. Joel Rifkin was born on January 20th, 1959, in New York City. His mother was 20 years old. His father was a 24-year-old college student. Neither of them was equipped to care for a child, so Joel was put up for adoption. Benjamin and Jeannie Rifkin became his parents. They adopted a baby girl three years later. They moved to East Meadow, Long Island. Joel would live there well into adulthood. Joel did not grow up in a dysfunctional household. He was not treated differently by Jeannie and Benjamin just because he was not a biological relation. They enjoyed a quality of life typical of the upper middle class. So Joel wanted for nothing and grew up in a neighborhood that was safe for children. Things were not always so pleasant for Joel outside of his home. He was very shy and awkward around other children. He became a target for bullying at his school. Joel also faced difficulties academically. Those IQ was tested with the results of 128. He struggled with learning disabilities. His grades never reflected his level of intelligence. Joel was dubbed Joe the Turtle by his peers at school. This was due to his unusual gait. He had a sloping posture and walked at a very slow pace. He was never selected to participate in sports due to an assumption of incompetence. The bullying began with teasing and jokes, but soon escalated to more malicious treatment. They humiliated him by playing pranks and jokes at his expense. His books and lunch were frequently stolen. The bullies would sneak up behind him and pull his pants down. From there, he was assaulted regularly. Joel became so afraid of being bullied that he wouldn't leave the school's property to go home until he was sure all the other students had left. He didn't play with the other kids from his neighborhood because he feared that they too would bully him. He couldn't leave the house without being targeted for verbal or physical abuse. His shyness was heightened, and he soon lived his life in the grip of debilitating social anxiety. Things didn't improve much for Joel in high school, and Al's father joined the others in berating Joel. Benjamin was embarrassed by Joel's substandard academic performance. He would yell at Joel, asking him why he wouldn't do anything to please him. When considering why Joel was socially inactive, Jeannie knew nothing of the bullying and assumed he was just a loner by nature. The bullying continued. Joel was considered a nerd by his peers. He wore his pants up high, with his white socks showing, he wore glasses. There was nothing in his behavior that provoked the attacks. One of his alumni referred to him years later as an abuse unit, meaning that he existed as a human appliance for others to abuse for their amusement. Since involvement in sports tended to bring some social benefits along with it, Joel joined the track team. This did nothing to elevate his social status in the school, and the bullying was just as callous as ever. He acquired a new nickname, Lardass. His head was frequently pushed into toilets. His clothes were either stolen or hidden from him. Joel was determined to change this situation. He invited some of the bullies to come to his house to drink beer and watch television with him. A few of them did, but unbeknownst to Joel, they were just using him. 
Joel was unsuccessful at sports, so he joined the yearbook staff. Immediately after, somebody stole his camera. He remained committed to the yearbook. He worked hard to ensure the yearbook would be completed by its deadline. He was devastated when a wrap-up party was held and he was excluded. Joel Rifkin graduated high school in 1977. He ranked at the bottom of his class. He intended to go to college and hoped that the social conditions would be better for him there. Joel tried to date girls in high school, but his bullies always intervened, and his plans fell through on the first dates. For one date, he arranged to take a girl out, but the track team sabotaged his plans. They trapped him in the school's gymnasium and threw eggs at him. Joel was forced to call his father. On another date, Joel and his female companion made it to a pizza parlor before his bullies found them. They chased them both down a street until Joel and his date managed to lose them by hiding in a library. Joel entered college never having had a girlfriend. He did manage to lose his virginity about this time, at the age of 18. Joel went to Nassau Community College for one year. He was bored by his classes and was frequently absent. He had only completed one course by the end of the year. In fall of 1978, Joel transferred to SUNY Brockport, the State University of New York at Brockport, a suburb of Rochester. It was there where he joined the photography club. While at Brockport, Joel developed a relationship with a girl, but it didn't make much progress. She found him to be sweet, but he was depressed all the time, and she was put off by it. As always, Joel Rifkin was a failed scholar, and his grades at Brockport were poor. He dropped out in 1980. He moved back in with his parents. He tried attending classes at Nassau Community College again. He cut classes again, and finally dropped out for good in 1984. Rifkin joined the workforce. He held numerous jobs, but these stints were always short-lived. He was a frequent no-show. His hygiene was repellent. He struggled to complete even the most rudimentary of tasks. One of his former employers has claimed that Joel couldn't even count to ten. There was one job Joel Rifkin wanted, a writer. Everything he wrote was bleak or dark. Otherwise, he was still interested in photography and also in horticulture. He hadn't succeeded at developing either of these passions into a career. Joel moved out of his parents' house after getting a job, but would move back in after getting fired. Tragedy struck in the fall of 1986. Benjamin Rifkin's health was deteriorating. He suffered from emphysema and was then diagnosed with prostate cancer. He was chronically ill and suffered from relentless pain. Unable to face another day of suffering, Benjamin committed suicide by overdosing on barbiturates in February 1987. He died after being in a coma for four days. Joel gave a moving eulogy at Benjamin's funeral that brought many of the attendees to tears. Joel's depression was compounded by his grief. In 1988, Joel Rifkin attended classes at the State College of Technology in New York. He enrolled in the two-year horticulture program. For the first time in his life, he was academically successful. He earned straight A's over two semesters. He was rewarded with an internship at Planting Fields Arboretum, which was located in Oyster Bay. Joel was thrilled to receive the internship. He was even more elated when he discovered that one of the other interns was an attractive blonde girl. He would shadow her often, but he couldn't bring himself to ask her out. Nevertheless, in his fantasies, they were a couple enjoying a romance. In reality, he soon realized the feelings were not mutual, and he became frustrated. 
He had experienced years and years of rejection and exclusion, and he was about to reach his breaking point. Joel became fascinated and obsessed with prostitutes. It began in 1972. The idea to strangle them came after seeing the Alfred Hitchcock film Frenzy. Soon after that seminal event, his parents bought him a car. He soon took to driving around the streets at night in search of hookers. He utilized their services while he was still going to Nassau Community College. More often than not, if he skipped a class, it was because he was with a prostitute. The same applied whenever he failed to show up at work. He was so preoccupied with and addicted to prostitutes that he ran into debt, outfitting himself with their services. Sometimes his experiences with call girls didn't end well. He was occasionally robbed by the whore or her pimp. One woman robbed him on two separate occasions. August 22nd, 1987. Joel Rifkin solicited sex from the wrong whore. She was an undercover cop, and he was arrested. He paid a fine. He concealed his activities from his family and became even more determined to keep the wool over their eyes. He drove out to Manhattan to take in the sights of its high-end sleaze. Around this time, Rifkin began collecting newspaper articles about serial killers. He was particularly fixated on the murderers who killed prostitutes. Two serial killers in this vein that drew his interest at this time were Arthur Shawcross and the Green River Killer, who was yet to be identified. He tried to convince himself that his fixation on these men was born purely out of curiosity. The truth was, that was only phase one. His urge to emulate them would follow. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Because he was such a lonely child and teenager, he sought solace in his imagination, where everything was as he wanted. In his fantasy world, rejection and bullying didn't have the wherewithal to intrude on his vision of an ideal life. His imaginary life did not remain untouched by evil and malice. For years, he fantasized about raping women and stabbing them to death. During his first several experiences with hookers, they didn't know how lucky they were that he didn't act on his impulse to strangle them. When Joel wasn't fucking a prostitute, he fantasized about killing her. All the years of abuse and humiliation he suffered sabotaged his mental health. Rage grew inside of him like a virus, and along with it, violent tendencies. March 1989. The proverbial last straw broke the camel's back, and Joel Rifkin reached his breaking point. His fantasies about murdering prostitutes would not go away. They were winning, and he was helpless to resist. Joel crafted a plan on how to act on these urges. When his mother went away on a business trip, he took to the streets to find a prostitute. He went to Manhattan's East Village. He picked up a young woman named Susie. She was a junkie. They picked up some drugs on the way to his house. Once at the house, they had sex. Joel was disappointed. He described it as listless. Susie asked him if they could go out to score more drugs. It was not to be. Joel picked up a howitzer shell that belonged to his parents. He hit her with it numerous times. 
He hit her until he was too exhausted to continue. He didn't hit her enough times to kill her. When he tried to shift her body's position, she bit his finger, leaving a deep wound. In retaliation, he strangled her to death. Joel stuffed her body into a garbage bag. He proceeded to clean the living room to remove all traces of blood and other debris. The experience of murdering his first hooker was intense. He laid down for a few hours to recuperate. After Joel woke from his nap, he dragged Susie to the basement. He laid her body across the washer and dryer. He dismembered her body with a craft knife. He pulled out her teeth with pliers so that she could not be identified. He cut her fingertips off so that her prints would not be matched. He crammed her head into an empty paint can. He put the rest of her body parts into garbage bags. He loaded it all into his mother's car. He drove the remains to New Jersey, where he dumped it all in the forest near Hopewell. As he returned to Manhattan, he threw the rest of her into the East River. Susie didn't stay hidden for long. A golfer stumbled upon her head while searching for a ball. The police were not able to identify her at the time. She tested positive for HIV when news of the murder broke. Joel had a serious panic attack when it occurred to him that he may have been infected. Joel Rifkin struck again in late 1990, over a year since his first murder. He chose his target when he saw she resembled Madonna. She was a prostitute named Julie Blackbird. His mother was out of town, and Joel was free to take Julie back to their house. After spending the night having sex with her, he orchestrated her death the morning after. He beat Julie with a heavy wooden table leg until she was incapacitated. He finished her off by strangling her. He considered having sex with her corpse, like Ted Bundy, but found the idea repugnant. Joel went out on a shopping trip. He bought a mortar pan and some cement. He dismembered Julie's body. He put her head, arms, and legs in buckets. He immersed them in cement. He put her torso in a milk crate, and it, too, was filled with cement. Joel threw the torso and head in Manhattan's East River. He threw the rest of her in a barge canal in Brooklyn. Her remains were never located. He confessed to her killing during a confession. Her personal journal was found among Joel's belongings. July 13, 1991. A woman named Barbara was working the beat as a prostitute. She was a drug addict and had a criminal record for prostitution and auto theft. After arriving at Rifkin's house, they had sex. Barbara fell asleep soon after. Joel went after her with the same table leg he used on Julie Blackbird. He pounded Barbara in the head with it. He strangled her until she was dead. He didn't want to dismember another body. He found it too repulsive. Instead, he wrapped Barbara's body in plastic and placed her in a large cardboard box. He folded her body so that she would fit. He drove it to the Hudson River and dropped the box into the water. Hours later, a group of firefighters doing a training exercise found the box. Though a coroner ruled that her death was caused by a drug overdose, Joel Rifkin confessed his culpability two years later. She was buried in Potter's Field Cemetery, classified as a Jane Doe. Rifkin wasn't concerned when her body was first found. He didn't think there was any way her murder could be traced to him, and he was right. September 1, 1991. Mary Ellen DeLuca, 22 years old, worked the streets as a prostitute to support her drug habit. She started out in the company of friends that evening, but she was jonesing for crack, so she took up Joel Rifkin's offer of money for her services. They didn't go back to his house right away. 
They drove around several spots in New York City to buy crack. By the time they arrived at the cheap motel Rifkin checked them into, he had spent $150 on crack. Mary demanded more. She didn't want to have sex with him since she had gotten her fix of crack, but she agreed to do it since that's what he hired her for. She didn't make it pleasant for him. She rushed it and complained about it the entire time. This angered Joel. At one point, he got sick of it and asked her if she wanted to die. According to him, she said yes. Having received consent, he began strangling her. She did not resist him. She wasn't bluffing. She accepted that this was her time to die. He would go on to say that this murder was a weird one because of her lack of resistance. She reacted like he was doing her a favor. Disposing of her body would be a problem. They were still in the motel room. How would he drag her lifeless body out of the room without being seen? He remembered his favorite scene from Frenzy. He left and bought a steamer trunk. He forced Mary's body into the trunk and brought it out to his vehicle. He drove to Orange County and pulled into a rest stop outside of Cornwall. He left the trunk there. He didn't conceal or camouflage the trunk. He had no faith that the police would identify her. October 1st, the trunk was found. A month had passed. There was no ID inside. She was naked save for her brassiere. Her body had decomposed to such a degree that the coroner was unable to determine the cause of death. Mary was buried as a Jane Doe and was identified in June 1993. Joel Rifkin continued to pick up hookers after killing Mary DeLuca, but he didn't kill them all. One September evening, he picked up the second prostitute that night. Yun Lee was 31 years old. He had picked her up several times. She got in his car again, but this time he was unable to follow through. It was his second sexual encounter of the evening, and he was spent. He dealt with his feeling of humiliation by striking Yun. He finished by strangling her. This was the fifth time he killed someone he knew, and he was temporarily remorseful. He couldn't wallow in self-pity for long. He had a body to get rid of. He obtained another steamer trunk and filled it with Yun Li's corpse. He dropped it into the East River. She was found on September 23rd. Her husband identified her. December 25th, 1991. Joel gave himself a hooker for Christmas. He found her on West 46th Street in Manhattan. He couldn't remember her name. While she performed fellatio on him, he strangled her. He reported later that she died quickly. He deposited her body into the passenger seat. He drove her to his place of work and concealed her cadaver under a tarpaulin. He drove to Westbury. There was a recycling plant he once worked at in the area. He acquired a 55-gallon drum whose purpose had previously been to contain oil. He drove back to put Jane Doe into the drum. He drove it to the East River and rolled it into the water. He had a close call with the law when he did this. He was accosted by police, who accused him of illegal dumping. He told them he was collecting rubbish, as opposed to dumping it. They let him off with a warning and moved on. Rifkin bought several drums of the same variety. They made it so he could dispose of a body easily and without dismembering its many parts. Lorraine Orvieto, 28 years old, was bipolar. Instead of controlling her moods with medication prescribed by a psychiatrist, she used cocaine. It is an expensive drug and she turned tricks to finance her habit. On December 26, 1991, she was walking the streets in Bayshore, Long Island, and was accosted by Joel Rifkin. She got in his car, and he drove her to a school nearby. Once there, Lorraine performed oral sex on Joel. 
he climaxed by strangling her to death. He went through her purse once she was dead. He discovered she had AIDS. He kept her medication, jewelry, and ID as trophies. He drove to the landscaping company he worked at. He stuffed her body into an oil drum. From there, he drove the drum to Brooklyn and dropped it into Coney Island Creek. Nobody reported her missing for two months, not even her family. Her body was found by a fisherman on July 11, 1992. Joel Rifkin had developed an addiction in his own right. He was hooked on homicide. His homicidal tendencies became harder and harder to suppress, and the gaps of time between murders were closing in. He was killing compulsively. January 2nd, 1992. Mary Ann Holloman, 39 years old, was another prostitute enslaved by a drug habit. Rifkin took her to the same location he took Yoon Lee. He strangled her to death while she performed fellatio on him. He couldn't remember much about this incident later, aside from the fact that he disposed of her body in an oil drum and dumped it in Coney Island Creek. The drum was found July 9, 1992. It was reported by a caller who chose to remain anonymous. Mary was identified by her dental records, and her family arranged for her burial. Though it occurred to police that a serial killer may be at large, the New York Police Department was bursting at the seams with murder cases. Also, nobody considered prostitutes to be a high priority as far as victims were concerned. Rifkin's ninth victim has remained unidentified. It was business as usual. He strangled her to death, deposited her into an oil drum, and submerged the drum in water. The drum was found on May 13, 1992. One day in April 1992, Joel Rifkin was a no-show at work. He decided instead to go cruising for prostitutes. He settled on Iris Sanchez. 25 years old, on First Avenue. Like the others, she was a drug addict, turning tricks to pay for her fix. He drove her to a housing project in Manhattan. In the middle of a sexual encounter, he strangled her until she choked out her dying breath. He drove from there to the Brooklyn Bridge. He was searching for a place to dump her body. He left it at an illegal dump site near Rockaway Boulevard. He stole her jewelry and left her beneath a rancid mattress. Nobody found her body until Rifkin described the location to police during his confession. May 25, 1992. Prostitute Anna Lopez was working on Atlantic Avenue in Queens. She was a mother to three children with three separate fathers but she was addicted to cocaine and was absent from her home to turn tricks to buy more. She got into Joel Rifkin's car and they had sex on a nearby residential street. Rifkin strangled her during the act. He spent the next few hours searching for an ideal spot to leave her body. He chose a location beside the I-84 freeway in Brewster, Putnam County. She was found the next day by a motorist who stopped to urinate. Rifkin kept one of her earrings. Rifkin's next victim was Violet O'Neill, 21 years old. He took her to his home. He killed and disposed of her in the same way that was more customary of his beginnings as a mass murderer. He put her body into the bathtub and dismembered it. He wrapped her torso in black plastic. Her limbs were put in a suitcase. He tossed all her parts into the Hudson River. Mary Catherine Williams was a homeless and drug-addicted prostitute. Joel Rifkin had utilized her services twice before the fateful day of October 2nd, 1992. He bought her drugs, and when she fell asleep, he began to strangle her. She woke as he did so. She fought back but he prevailed upon her, and she was asphyxiated. He stole her purse, credit cards, and costume jewelry. 
Her body was found on December 21st. She went unidentified until Joe's confession. Joel Rifkin's final victim of 1992 was Jenny Soto, 23 years old. Like the others, she was a drug addict. On November 16th, she was working the beat near the Williamsburg Bridge in Lower Manhattan. They had sex in his pickup truck, and like with the others, he strangled her, but she fought back. She had a lot of spirit. She scratched his face and neck hard enough to break her nails and leave scars. Reflecting on this murder, he said she was the toughest one to kill. Joel kept Jenny's ID cards, earrings, undergarments, and drug needle as trophies. He rolled her corpse into the Harlem River, not far from where he left the remains of Yun Lee. It only took a day for Jenny's body to be discovered. She was identified by her fingerprints. Rifkin was shaken by the fact that for the first time, a victim left traces of a violent struggle behind on him. He struggled to come up with a plausible explanation for how he came to be scratched like that. This slowed him down. He didn't kill again for 15 weeks. 1993. Joel Rifkin wasn't finished murdering prostitutes. He spent his cooling off period devising ways to avoid detection and injury. Joel Rifkin's first victim of 1993 was Leah Evans, 28 years old. She was a single mother of two children and lived in Brooklyn with them and her mother. Like all the other call girls who met the Grim Reaper in the form of a John named Joel Rifkin, she was a junkie. She was working the streets on the night of February 27th when she got into his vehicle. Rifkin drove them to an abandoned parking lot for sex. As she began to undress, she thought better of it and changed her mind. She felt the environs of the parking lot left them too exposed. She demanded a location that offered more privacy and discretion. Joel refused to accommodate this. She started crying. This failed to elicit any sympathy in Joel. He strangled her. After finishing her off, he took her to a stretch of forest in Long Island and buried her in a shallow grave. She was the only victim he buried. Still, May 9th, she was found by hikers. They noticed a hand sticking up out of the ground. Police were unable to identify the body. A forensic anthropologist was brought in to create a facial reconstruction. Before this process was completed, Rifkin confessed. Also, her driver's license was found in his bedroom. Lauren Marquez, 28 years old, was another drug-addicted prostitute. She was working 2nd Avenue on April 2nd, 1993, when she was scooped up by Joel Rifkin. He drove them to an area near the Manhattan Bridge. He started strangling her, but he was distracted when he saw a man nearby walking his dog. Lauren grabbed this opportunity to fight back. She nearly escaped, but Rifkin prevailed upon her and broke her neck. He left her body in Suffolk County. She was only found when he confessed and direct police to the location of her remains. The final victim of Joel Rifkin's, not just of 1993, but of all time, was Tiffany Bresciani. She was addicted to heroin and worked as a stripper when she wasn't walking the streets as a call girl. In the early hours of June 24, 1993, Joel picked her up. She was the second hooker he had been with that night and the fourth in two days. He took them to the parking lot of the New York Post newspaper's offices and strangled her to death. He was driving his mother's car and he put her lifeless body on the back seat. He drove toward home, buying rope and a tarpaulin along the way. By the time he arrived home, Tiffany's cadaver had been wrapped, tied, and placed in the trunk of the car. His timing wasn't exactly advantageous. Once he entered the house, his mother demanded that he give her the keys to the car. He gave them to her, and she went out shopping. 
unaware the entire time that she was transporting a dead hooker. She returned home still unaware of the presence of Tiffany's body in the trunk. Once his mother got settled indoors, Joel shifted Tiffany into the garage. He left her in a wheelbarrow. He spent the next three days working on his pickup truck in the garage with Tiffany's body nearby. It was in the middle of a heat wave and the stench of her decomposing tissue permeated the air. His truck, having been finely tuned for the task of transporting Tiffany's remains, he loaded her into it. His intention was to leave it near Melville's Republic Airport, which was 15 miles away from his house. What he didn't count on was a detail of vehicular maintenance he had overlooked. It would bring him to the attention of police troopers. It was a very simple matter of forgetting to install his license plates. It was June 28th, and when they signaled to him to pull over, he refused. He led them on a chase. It was not of the high-speed variety. Rifkin didn't exceed 50 miles per hour. He tried to lose them, but after 20 minutes, he crashed into a utility pole. With the intention of busting Rifkin for traffic violations and resisting arrest, the officers cuffed him. It was then, as they stood next to the truck, that they noticed a very foul odor coming from the back. One of the officers searched the back of the truck with a flashlight. When he peeled back a corner of the blue tarpaulin, he made a grisly discovery. They didn't have to strong arm a confession out of him. Rifkin admitted that she was a prostitute and he killed her. The arresting officers have said that during his confession, Joel Rifkin was devoid of emotion. He was taken to Troop L Barracks for additional investigation and questioning. Over the course of eight hours, Joel Rifkin confessed to committing 17 murders. He described every murder in detail, relating every incident in the form of a story. He couldn't always remember minute details about the victims, but he always remembered the killings themselves and the disposal of the bodies. No recordings were made of these confessions. He claimed he asked for a lawyer several times, but was told he wouldn't be issued an attorney until he gave them more information. A transcript was written, though. It revealed that he was asked if he wanted a lawyer, and he declined. Some of the more specific information he gave about the killings included the following. He preferred women who were Caucasian, Asian, or Latino. He described how he disassembled the bodies that were dismembered. He noted where the bodies were dumped or buried. He told them which belongings he stole from them. He still delivered the data with a flat affect, always matter-of-fact and with no emotion whatsoever. Neither malice nor sadism was detected in his demeanor as he recollected the particulars of his killing spree. The investigators were unsure about whether to believe him when it came to the other victims. They wondered if he was citing cases reported in the media involving women murdered by serial killers. Such stories were hardly unheard of. He told them he had been soliciting prostitutes since he received the first issue of his driver's license at the age of 16. They took him seriously as a matter of protocol. He told them he dumped three bodies in Southampton, so a team of investigators were dispatched there. As the investigators searched for bodies, search warrants were issued so that officers could search Rifkin's parents' home. They told her he was detained for a traffic violation. His mother arranged for attorney Robert Sale to represent him. The following items were stolen from his victim's cooling bodies and were found in Joel's bedroom. Underwear, jewelry, purses, wallets, clothing, hair accessories, cosmetics, medication packages, driver's licenses, Though they were not directly related to the case, some items in his bedroom indicated possible factors of his modus operandi. There were several books about serial killers. There were numerous tapes of pornographic movies with sadism as a common motif. Numerous photographs of women were also found. 
More directly connected to the murders were items found in the garage. A wheelbarrow containing three ounces of human blood. Several tools coated in dried blood. A chainsaw whose blades were speckled with human flesh and blood. As these items were examined and cataloged, Rifkin's confession was still underway. He listed dates, names, and locations of the murders and their victims. Some of the information was missing crucial details, but investigators were able to puzzle together the information to find out what they needed. Joel Rifkin's attorney, Robert Sale, contacted the state police to insist they stop interrogating Rifkin until he could have a talk with him. They ignored this demand and continued to interview Joel for about another hour. June 29th, 1993. After meeting with his lawyer, Joel Rifkin appeared at a preliminary hearing. He pleaded not guilty. It was futile for him to try for a bond, so Sale waived the bond application. Sale succeeded in getting the formal arraignment postponed for two weeks. In the meantime, Rifkin was remanded to the Nassau County Correctional Facility in East Meadow. While there, he fired Robert Sale and enlisted the services of John Lawrence and Michael Soschnick. Soschnick had been a district attorney and was a highly esteemed attorney specializing in criminal law. November 1993, Soschnick tried to have Rifkin's confession suppressed because the search of his truck was not mandated by a search warrant. This motion was denied. Later, Rifkin was offered a plea deal. In exchange for a guilty plea for the 17 murders, he would be sentenced to 46 years to life. Joel was convinced he could dodge all charges with an insanity defense, so he declined the plea bargain. The hearing continued for four months. It didn't help that Soschnick annoyed the judge by arriving late and no-showing on some occasions. He would also arrive unprepared sometimes. Judge Wexner ended the hearing in March. He declared that there was enough evidence for him to reject the motions put forward by the defense. A trial was scheduled for April. Rifkin was infuriated. He fired Soschnick. He kept Lawrence, despite his lack of experience in criminal trials. The trial began on April 11, 1994. Rifkin followed through with his plan to plead not guilty by reason of temporary insanity. Opening arguments began on April 20th. An attorney for the prosecution described Joel Rifkin as a sexual sadist and a killer who enjoyed watching his victims suffer. He went on to say, He got caught red-handed, and now he's using and abusing the concept of mental illness. Lawrence countered this by saying Rifkin was a, quote, paranoid schizophrenic who lived in the twilight zone, unquote. He said that Rifkin's compulsions to kill overwhelmed him and had taken control of his life. Rifkin's behavior during the proceedings took an odd turn sometimes. He snored. When Lawrence was asked about his behavior, he said Joel had an allergic reaction to a sandwich he ate. Joel Rifkin was evaluated by psychiatrist Barbara Kerwin. She testified that his psychological evaluation revealed him to be the most pathological subject she had seen in 20 years of practicing psychiatry. The prosecution arranged for Dr. Park Dietz to testify. He disagreed with Kerwin's assessment, stating that though Rifkin was mentally ill, he wasn't insane. He felt Joel knew what he was doing when he committed the murders. May 9th. After deliberating, the jury adjudicated Joel Rifkin guilty of murder. He was also found guilty of reckless endangerment for the police chase. Judge Wexner sentenced Rifkin to 25 years to life for the murders. He was sentenced to up to seven years for the reckless endangerment charge. He wasn't charged for all the murders yet. On May 9th, he was scheduled to stand trial for the murders of Lauren Marquez and Leah Evans. He hired a new lawyer, Martin Effman. He entered an insanity plea once again. Instead of using schizophrenia as the criteria this time around, 
They claim that being adopted made him mentally ill, a condition called adopted child syndrome. The findings of this illness were due to the work and study of Dr. David Kirshner. He agreed to be a witness for the defense team. The prosecution argued that adopted child syndrome is not a legitimate mental illness recognized by the American Psychological Association. It was also not listed in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. Ethman's contention was that when Joel was separated from his birth mother, it was so traumatic for him that he lashed out at all women who bore similarities to his biological mother. Joel once claimed that his biological mother was a prostitute who was too poor to afford an abortion, so she gave him up for adoption. Dr. Kirshner believed the separation gave rise to fantasies about picking up hookers and killing them. He said it was made possible by a dissociative state induced by adopted child syndrome. Dr. Kirshner treated adopted children for 26 years. He observed during that time common patterns of behavior, like sexual promiscuity, stealing, and pathological lying. There were other psychological complications, like anxiety, extreme antisocial behavior, and an absence of remorse. He had been involved in a dozen cases where adopted children committed murders. This has happened among only 10% of adoptees, however. Judge John J.J. Jones Jr. dismissed claims made by Rifkin's defense that his constitutional right to have a lawyer present after his arrest had been violated. He also declared that his confession was admissible as evidence. He granted the request to have Rifkin undergo further neurological testing before the start of the trial. The trial was scheduled for October. The trial didn't take place. Joel Rifkin pleaded guilty to the murders of Lauren Marquez and Leah Evans. The judge accepted the plea and sentenced Rifkin to 25 years to life for each murder. The last trial was for the murder of Iris Sanchez. Rifkin apologized for the horrific crimes he had committed. He informed the relatives of the victims that he didn't understand why he was driven to commit the murders. He said to them, You all think I am nothing but a monster, and you are right. Part of me must be. Carol de Leon is Iris Sanchez's sister. She addressed the court, describing Rifkin as a cold-blooded killer. She made this statement. Iris was far from being perfect or an angel, but I will say that she did not have to die the way she did, strangled by the hands of Joel Rifkin, then dumped like garbage. Iris Sanchez will rest in peace in our hearts as of today, but you, Joel Rifkin, will now rot in hell. This is another statement Joel Rifkin made in court. I want you to know that I am sorry for what I have done to you and your daughters. I will go to my grave carrying the deaths of these innocent women with me. Some of you believe that I felt that their murder was in some way justified because they were prostitutes. But this is untrue. I never felt that way. Some of them were my friends and were kind to me. My victims were people with dreams and families, and some of them had children of their own. What I have done can never be forgiven. But I ask you to believe me when I tell you I will never understand the part of me that caused me to do those terrible things to your children. Not only will I go to my death reliving these horrors, but I will go there never knowing at all why I committed them at all. Please believe me that there are other Joel Rifkins walking your streets right now. Like me, they will eventually be caught, but not until they have caused more suffering and deaths. I hope society can prevent this. Judge Justice Robert Joseph Hannapley was moved to make his own remark. He said it was unfortunate that he was unable to sentence Joel Rifkin to death. The capital punishment law would eventually be reenacted, but not at that time. All told, Joel Rifkin was convicted of nine of the 17 murders he committed. He was sentenced to a total of 203 years in prison. 
In prison, Joel Rifkin was interviewed several times. On one occasion, he was asked if he understood why he killed so many women. He said, it was just something that happened and, you know, I had no plans to repeat it. Am I just evil? Am I brain damaged? I mean, these are questions I want answered. He once told a journalist that he told himself that prostitutes were nothing more than drug-addicted, disease-carrying vermin. Logically speaking, he knew this was untrue. Things got a little rough for Rifkin in prison. Early in 1994, he got into a scuffle with Colin Ferguson, the Long Island Railroad mass murderer. Supposedly, they engaged in a fist fight over whose murders were of the higher caliber. Ferguson opened fire on commuters aboard a train. He killed six people. Others say it was because Rifkin was making noise while Ferguson was trying to make a phone call. Ferguson said to Rifkin, I wiped out six devils, and you only killed women. Rifkin's response, Yeah, but I had more victims. Ferguson punched Rifkin in the face. In 1996, Rifkin was transferred to Attica State Prison. He was assaulted soon after arriving. He was constantly threatened. It began to reflect his experiences of being bullied in public school. He was placed into solitary confinement and remained there for four years. Joel Rifkin now resides at Clinton Correctional Facility in Dannemora, New York. Maximum security. He launched appeals for his convictions, but all were defeated. He is forever known as Joel the Ripper, a fitting moniker for a human monster. Thank you for listening to Human Monsters. Bye for now.